listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In January of 2022, Adam Sawyer had everything he dreamed of and more. His partner, Kara, was the love of his life. Their cat, Leela, was his all-time favorite animal. Their off-the-grid home, Whiskey Jane, was the best place he had ever lived. By the end of February 2022, Adam had lost all three of them. Kara and Leela died when Whiskey Jane was destroyed in a fire. To say Adam was plunged into darkness might be the biggest understatement I've ever made. Untethered, he turned to what he had found solace in before, especially when he was in recovery from substance use, nature. Prior to this devastation, Adam was an outdoor and travel writer and photographer. So he went outside. And when he came back inside, he wrote. Those writings turned into a series of essays chronicling the emotional landscape he toured while immersed in nature's landscape. In those first days, weeks, and months, Adam faced the dilemma that so many people in grief face. How the heck do I tell people what happened? And in particular, how do I tell strangers? like the salesperson who was helping as he tried to replace his whole wardrobe, or the unsuspecting Target employee who came across him crying in an aisle. How Adam answers those questions has changed over time, just like his grief. Adam is deeply self-reflective, funny, and a skilled storyteller. So here's our conversation. Adam, thank you for making time to be part of Grief Out Loud. I'm really looking forward to our time together. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. And you've done a lot of public speaking and interviews, primarily in your work as a nature and a travel guide author. How are you feeling in this moment about showing up on a podcast that's about grief? It's different, uh, definitely different. Um, yeah, I've you know done podcasts or, or public speaking, as you mentioned, uh, for years now, and it's always been upbeat stuff. It's been about either travel or destination things or, you know, me having a big smile and, and trying to make jokes or ma- make light of a situation or, and so it is def- definitely been a, uh, an adjust, an adjustment for me, not only in like being in a podcast or something like this as a guest discussing grief, which, you know, prior to this uh, last loss, I kept as far away from me as humanly possible. But yeah, so, and, and it's been different, you know, the presentations I'm, I'm giving right now deal very explicitly with essays about grief. So that's definitely been a, a, a learning curve for me in terms of how I speak and, and how I'm a guest on something, but it's been, it's been, it's been pretty wonderful and enlightening. Adam, what do you want to share with us about Kara and about Leela and your house, Whiskey Jane? So I thought about this a lot because there's a tendency when, when people pass, a lot of times they attain instant sainthood uh, because that's what we do. No one wants to talk ill of, of the deceased. 
And at the risk of coming off cheesy or, you know, obviously my own bend or slant on this uh, and not to make it sound all the more sad because it's already a pretty sad set of circumstances, but Kara was uh, the love of my life and maybe the most uh, remarkable human I'd ever encountered. And commensurately that, that damn cat of hers, Leela, uh, which became my angel mitt straight from heaven, was my single favorite pet of all time. The, the greatest single cat that has ever ever graced the earth with, with its presence. And our off-the-grid home, uh, Whiskey Jane, was my all-time favorite mailing address. And so I, you know, when this happened, it was essentially I felt like I was as happy as a human could potentially ever hope to realistically be. And it was as good as my life had ever been. And I was so thankful for it all. Like I would put like just, I, I radiated gratitude and like would put that out into the, the clean, sweet air of our homestead daily and would communicate just how much uh, I loved Kara and how thankful I was for the way she enriched my being with like borderline nuisance like regularity. And so, yeah, they were, they were really truly just uh, the, the greatest things in the world to me, which, you know, made the loss all, all the more catastrophic. Now, of course, I want to ask on the other side of the sainthood, <laughs> what were some of the quirky yeah. things of Kara and Leela and Whiskey Jane? Oh, yeah. So, and I did mean to, to, to incorporate this into that sainthood. you know, obviously, she wasn't perfect. None, none of us are. Our relationship was far from perfect. Uh, you know, Kara was, she was dark and she could be moody and she was, she was a goth queen for crying out loud. Like she was sleeves of tattoos and long, dark hair and cat eye glasses. And she could be stubborn and you had to kind of navigate that a little bit, but she was also had the, you know, the quickest wit of anyone I'd ever encountered and the darkest humor, which I, I greatly appreciate and, you know, was incredibly intelligent. But yeah, she would just kind of set, get set in her ways and do things that, well, the way she wanted to do them. And I kind of had to navigate those waters and realize how to, how to subtly correct course or steer wide berth. And the, the place where we lived was actually kind of a wonderful tester for us because the first two years that we lived there was quite a learning curve, uh, especially when it's an off-the-grid home that was completed by people that were no longer kind of around. And a lot of it was just kind of uh, left in notes and details of how things worked and how you were supposed to make it work. And maybe there was a neighbor that helped install something one time that could help you kind of understand. But, you know, we had to replace almost all of the critical systems the first two years. So we took a lot of yard showers. Uh, there was a lot of uh, just candlelight evenings, uh, which also was good because it forced us to just go sit sit out on the porch and look at the stars. But yeah, by by the third year, after two years, we had gotten it down and we had found our flow and found the groove and we're, we're you know, pretty much killing it. And I, and I hate to say this, like I rarely say it out loud and certainly not in mixed company, which this would probably qualify as. But when the pandemic hit, we were that was like our time to shine uh, just because we were off the grid. We were on five acres. Uh, we had an orchard, we had all this stuff and we'd kind of gotten everything set up to the degree that we were just out there foraging and fermenting and cooking. And I was making yard hooch out of uh, the apples and fermenting anything I could into alcohol. <laughs> it's, 
It was, a, it was a fun time. So in a sense, you all were kind of prepared for the end of the world. Well, we weren't quite to that magnitude. I wouldn't like consider us preppers or anything. And we were, were certainly not capable of living entirely off the land. Uh, you know, we, but we definitely were in a better position, you know, being able to produce our own uh, electricity and, you know, have our own well water and, and all that sort of thing and be able to augment uh, society with what we were capable of, of producing or having ourselves out there. So we just really enjoyed the peace and quiet more than anything else. We, the main reason we went out there is because we wanted to be close enough to amenities that we wanted, but far enough away uh, and closer to her work as an in-home rural crisis counselor. Uh, and it just so happened that the right place was off the grid. And so we just kind of looked at each other and said, want to give it a shot. Like, I'm game if you are, so let's do it. And then coming to the point where, in a sense, your world did end when the fire occurred and wondering, uh, how did you find out about the fire? What do you remember about getting that news? Yeah, uh, it it was the call. Uh, I was away for work. I was actually taking, going to be taking my mother on a, a trip with me for an assignment for writing assignment for a magazine. And so I had left uh, whiskey Jane, our home the night before the late afternoon before the fire. And I was staying at my mom's place in Beaverton. And then we were going to drive to the coast uh, that, that next morning. And so I got a call that woke me up at, you know, six something in the morning. And it was some law enforcement official up in Thurston County uh, where we lived in Washington letting me know that uh, wanted to know it a where I was and if I was okay. And if I knew where Kara was. And so things, things went, went pear shaped in a hurry after that. And so, you know, he said that there were, you know, there were two cars there. One was our truck and one was her car. And if, you know, I, I put two and two together pretty quickly, if they hadn't found her yet and the fire started at four, or, you know, if we hadn't heard from her, she was probably in there. So that was as shocking as you would imagine. I got off the phone and just kind of sat there for, uh, I don't know, like an hour or two before it even dawned on me that we should probably drive up there. Uh, I didn't know what we'd do when we got there or why or any, any of that. But I was just at that point waiting for a call uh, from them to let me know that they'd recovered her. So, yeah, that was that was a rough morning. And you just had this instinct of like, I have to get there. Yeah. So yeah. To what end? I'm not sure why I knew that they were going to want to talk to me. I knew they had questions for me and I, I just figured maybe better in person. Honestly, I don't remember. They may have requested me to come up there. That's a potentiality. Uh, I honestly don't remember. Yeah. got up there and, and chatted with the investigators and cause they always have to, especially in a situation like this, it's, you know, the significant other, is always the the person they really want to chat with. And so I had no problem wanting to get that conversation done and over with as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's a whole other layer, right, of being potentially seen with a bit of suspiciousness at the beginning of something like this. Yeah, and really luckily for us, like that didn't take very long at all just because of, you know, the text conversations that we had that, Everyone knew her, like her friends and family, what they knew of us and what my friends and family knew of us. It, it, that didn't last very long at all. 
So this is kind of a broad question that I usually don't ask because it's one of, you know, quote unquote, those questions that people ask without thinking about. But given these circumstances, I'm drawn to asking you, like, how, at least at the beginning, did you survive? I got lucky. Um, I was gifted with a set of circumstances that I don't know how many, how many, many people in, in recent human history have have been gifted with in terms of being able to uh, survive and process grief and be provided the space to, to breathe and lose my shit and do whatever I needed to do because of my support network, friends, family, the people I know in the travel and the outdoor industry that I've met along the way, I was able to immediately kind of, you know, I stayed the first few days with my mom but a, a friend that I had met when I was doing a story about 25 mile an hour zones on the Oregon coast, she owned a historic hotel that I'd stayed at out there in Wheeler, the, the old Wheeler hotel. And she invited me to come down for like a respite. And then she pushed me the, the keys to room five and said, this is yours until you find a place, which was, you know, I went from tears of abject sorrow to tears of, of complete and utter gratitude in the, <laughs> on the time. And because of where it was, it's on the Nahalem Bay, the town of Wheeler. So it's kind of, you know, where the, the coast range meets the ocean and where, you know, all these rivers and the bays and the beach and the mountains. And so I have utilized nature as a means of dealing with all sorts of things to include recovering from heroin addiction, uh, to processing grief. You know, whenever things got really wonky for me, nature is kind of where I went to, to find solitude and to process things. And I was given this essentially, okay, a place to live that was peaceful and out on the coast. And because of the support system and like my, my sister had started a GoFundMe, um, which was um, incredible and, and wonderfully well received by friends and family and strangers. So I didn't have to worry about where I was going to live. I didn't have to worry about how I was going to eat. And I didn't have to worry because of my particular circumstances about having to get back to the office in two weeks or having to go back or get the kids back. God forbid, and you know, like four or five days from now, or I didn't have to answer to anybody really, or do anything or be anywhere. And so I spent a solid year and a half doing what I, I call turbo grieving, in which I was able to go out every day and be in, in the wilderness, in the woods, on the beach, wherever I needed to be, as long as I needed to be every day and just scream, cry, sob, laugh, hug a tree, kick a branch, you know, whatever I needed to do. And then I would come back to the room there at the, at the hotel and write about it. And then sometimes I'd go back out again and just, I did that over and over for about a solid year and a half to be able to do that and be afforded that opportunity and that space. I, I, I may have told you before, I say it a lot, I was able to do more real grieving and processing and healing in the first six months from this loss. And I think most people truly get the opportunity to do in a lifetime. And so I am incalculably grateful uh, to have been provided that opportunity. So that's how I think that's ha exactly how I survived. As you're sharing it now, I know we've talked about it in pre previous conversations, but I was recognizing that for some people, 
that sense of being completely unanchored, no kids, no responsibilities in this way, would be more challenging. And that in your circumstance, it felt so helpful. It was both. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna send you this essay after after this because it. it there was an essay I wrote, and it's a, a famous lyric. Uh, it, the title was "Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose," and it was essentially the weighed down weightlessness of the, those feelings. Like I was drenched in freedom, but slowly drowning in a pool of aimless purpose purposelessness. So. I had no one to answer to and none of that, but like it was terrifying <laughs> because I had no path forward. I didn't know what I was doing next. I didn't know where I was going to live, how I was going to live, what I was going to do, where I was going to do it, why I was going to do it. Because at that point there didn't seem like a reason to. And so, yeah, it was just the most um, free yet purposeless I'd ever been, I call it that weighed down weightlessness. And so it was, and I tried to sort and put as many of those aspects into the positive file as I could and truly believe it. But it took a while before that they started staying in there. <laughs> what do you think Kara would think of how you survived? I, I do think she would be proud. I think she'd be pretty happy. I really do. I, and I've talked to some of her really close friends and family members about this and without getting into to too dramatic or in depth of detail about it, you know, in some ways, some folks expressed that had it have been the other way around, uh, Kara might not have been able to, to deal with it um, because of a lot of things in her life and how, how she is emotionally and her, her past with trauma and things like she was the strongest human I, I'd ever met, but, um, she processed and dealt with things differently that weren't always the most healthy ways. And I know for a fact, well, as much as, as, as one can, that she would have probably understood if I'd have gone to darker places, but, was probably cheering me on that I didn't and was probably really happy that I didn't. One of the things we connected on kind of early in our pre-recording conversation was this idea of how confusing and arduous it can be at times to like tell people what has happened, especially people who are new to you. And so I'm wondering what's kind of been your route through that? That was an abject nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, from from jump, it was a nightmare just because it reads so tragic. Uh, on paper, it's it's overwhelming in terms of, you know, how sad it is and just like, oh, my gosh, everything all at once kind of thing. And so and every time I, I shared it in the beginning, it was inherently an overshare just because of that. It felt like to me. I went through this like progression or it evolved, you know, in the beginning it started with, I, I had to tell people something because I would just be, uh, I lose my myself completely out in public. You know, I'd be in the barber's chair and one of Kara's all time favorite song would come over and, and I just lose it in the barber's chair or I'm in target and I happen to see the Halloween aisle and it's like her favorite all-time holiday and and like lose it there and so I would become so unconsolable 
that eventually someone comes up to the giant bearded man in aisle 13 is like, dude, are you okay? Uh, initially, I was just blurting it out. I was like, I lost, I lost my wife in a fire. I'm a cat. Da, 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 da. And I could see on, you know, on people's face, like, Jesus, I didn't. <laughs> okay, just, <laughs> I, I get it. But, but whoa, that's awful. Also, why are you telling me this? And so I came up with like an, a, an abbreviated way to deal with that situation was when someone said, hey, man, are you okay? It would often be, uh, I will be. I'm not now, but I will be. And then no one, the proper authorities aren't called. Uh, no one gives me a hotline that I, I should probably dial up. Like we avoid that part. But then I started trying to go on work assignments again. I started going on press trips. And, and I, I honestly, I jumped into that way too early. I thought that if I was doing that, I'd keep my mind occupied or if I could kind of dive into work, maybe that would help me. And it was, it was an abject failure. And what I would wind up doing in the beginning of these trips was like tell these people who were strangers to me, they were either other journalists or, or, or you know, PR people or people who I didn't know. I would kind of give them a, a high level overview right up front because I knew at some point I would become unmanageable and I didn't want, I didn't want them to have to like swim through that in the moment. And so that was kind of, you know, also jarring for people. And then I wound up weaponizing it at times. Like when I was, at a, um, an outdoor clothing uh, manufacturer and retailer that we know well in this area. And I was trying to replace all of my clothes, um, which is hard in so many ways, especially, you know, as you get older and your body shape is a little weirder and it takes a long time to find the things that fit just right. And then they just, they're there for as long as you can have them. And I was failing at at buying new clothes and it just made me sadder and I tried it four times. And so I'm, I'm at this place and the salesperson is helping walking me through it and getting me all these different things to try on. They're like, man, you're really getting a whole lot of stuff, like everything. I'm like, yeah, yeah. got to replace some stuff. And they kind of kept poking at it. It was like, man, what happened that you got to replace all this stuff? I'm like, well, there was a fire. And, you know, I know they were trying to be helpful or whatever it was they were trying to, to be uh but they said well you know on the bright side you get to replace everything and i was like well you know i can't replace my wife in a sporting goods store or anywhere for that matter so maybe we can move on from this now and so i would if i wanted an inquiry to end or i wanted someone just to f off um and leave me alone i would i would weaponize it that way and then this was the most um uh i don't know this one Sometimes you got it hurts to hold up the mirror <laughs> and try and recognize why it is you're doing certain things. But when I would lay down at night, I started seeing these scenes in my head of what I was doing throughout the day. And, and I feel like at some point in time or points in time, I was telling people to warrant that response, to make myself feel better if I could see just how awful what had happened was wash across someone's face, then the endless torment that I felt was maybe somehow more justifiable. And I recognized that as being like, yikes, that's really, it feels selfish and greasy. And why would you torture someone like that just so that you could feel better or maybe get a hug or someone would give you sympathy and, or you could get a shoulder to cry on for a minute that was a whole nother process that I wound up, you know, talking to a therapist about and trying to, to understand uh, how better 
to do that. But yeah, now now we're just finally to the point where I'm I'm pretty able to keep myself in check throughout the day. I rarely, if ever, lose it anymore. Uh, and when things are appropriate or if, you know, it's the right time and place, I do tell people, you know, I suffered kind of a tragic loss and that's why this, that and the other. And that seems to be pretty good now. I don't know why I didn't settle that uh, settle on that out the gate, but, you know, we live and we learn. Well, from what you've shared, it seems like your grief, your messaging around your grief has evolved as your grief has evolved. And the where you are now with the messaging wouldn't have fit with where you were in your grief. Right. Yeah. Because it was just out. It was explosive and uncontrollable. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of thought or logic going into it. That's for sure. Well, uh, you know, I've talked with people in the past about how, and this can happen at any point in grief, but for many people at the beginning, it is, it is everything. It is right. absolutely everything. So how could I potentially or even possibly consider interacting with a human without them knowing everything? If it's my all, my everything, I have no space to be anything else with you except what this is. So you got to know this thing to have any sort of connection with me, even if you are the kind, caring person in the target aisle. Being like, dude, are you okay? <laughs> right. Yeah. No. That and that's that's a hundred percent true. And I think that's yeah. I, I hadn't really thought thought into it that deeply, but it, it makes perfect sense that like uh, all of everything that I am or ever had or ever was is like what you're seeing right now in this moment. So let me tell you about the rest of it. <laughs> you mentioned earlier uh, of how, you know, prior to these losses, you have been in recovery from heroin. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you see any like similarities or differences in terms of, I don't like to phrase grief as something you recover from because I don't think that's very sure. accurate, but just that idea of, Kind of having to reconst reconstruct yourself. Oh yeah, there were a ton of parallels, and um, you know, early on, I, I, you know, I I think you can see silver linings anywhere if you squint hard enough. And you know, early early on in the process, I, I've gone through heroin addiction and recovery twice in my life, and each time it ascended, it essentially ended everything for me. Uh, the first time I was in the military, I'd had a nine year military career. I got addicted to opiates. They called them GI aspirin at the time. And I, over the course of years, became severely addicted to the point where I was prescribing my own, got caught, got arrested, got a felony conviction, got thrown into prison, military prison for a year. Uh, but they took away everything. Uh, my GI bill, the medical benefits, like everything was stripped away. And I was just kind of kicked out on the street. Granted, much, you know, of my own doing, but like I had to start from zero or sub-zero to some degree. And then the second time I had been clean for a decade and was living in Portland and getting the writing career off the ground. And uh, someone had offered me black tar heroin in, in a pizzeria that I was working at part-time while I was doing the writing. And, you know, two years later, I had spiraled out again and... By the time I got into detox that time, I had lost my best friend. I had lost my girlfriend at the time. And my writing career was kind of being actively flushed down the toilet. So I started all over from zero again. And there are definitely apples and oranges, but how long it takes to feel okay, let alone good, when you are recovering from opiate addiction 
uh, there are some definite similarities to like tragic loss or grief in that this is just going to take time. And I know this and I have to just settle in for the ride and quote unquote, embrace the suck uh, to, you know, paraphrase a military term, just know this is going to be terrible. And you just have to kind of know that's going to be terrible and put in the work and do the things you have to do along the way to make it to not terrible. And then to make it to a baseline of humanity and then maybe further after that. And so having done that twice, I wrote this essay recently. Um, it's in a, a new series of essays called the dark corners, which are really about just the really, um, the tough, tough stuff. And, you know, the days after the loss, I was journaling and I wrote to myself something in line with or to the point of coming back from sub-zero or having lost everything is kind of like emotional chemotherapy. And it's doing what you have to do to survive, but at what cost and how much is going to be left of me after this round. So having done that twice with the, the recovery from the opiate addiction, I had some semblance of what this might be like. Uh, again, total apples and oranges, but knowing you know, how to get yourself out from, you know, break, breach that barrier when you're trapped under ice and then take enough slow, deep breaths to pull yourself on top and then use fingernails and numb limbs to crawl and lay in the sun until you can, you're strong enough to dig for grubs and like sleep on sand and feathers and all those sorts of things is kind of what it feels like to come back from something like that. And I was kind of debating with myself at the time of how much, how, how worth it was it going to be um, when any life that I'll ever live after this is going to potentially be um, a hollowed out less than version at best. And at worst, I could spend two years crawling over broken glass and shedding skin and not arrive at a life worth living. And so, which, like I said, that's, it's pretty dark. Um, I was definitely mired in it at the time, but having recovered twice before I knew that feeling and this has been similar. Um, it really has in terms of it takes so long before you have like, okay moments, let alone okay days. And then before you actually feel good for an hour or two, let alone good for days. And, uh, so it definitely prepared me. Yeah. In, in more ways than I could have imagined. And uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, uh, and it probably did allow me a bit of a head start with knowing how terrible it was, just just how terrible it was going to be and how long it would take potentially. And just to settle in and be okay with that, I think helped me more than anything. Oh, so many thoughts came to mind when you were describing that process, Adam, from the idea that a lot of folks that I connect with who... I don't know quite the right, right word for it, but there's a protest element of like, why am I having such a hard time? Why am I not able to figure this out? Why is this affecting me so much? And you came into this experience consciously or unconsciously with this idea that there are things that level you and it will feel horrible right? and it will just take its time. And I think that's a perspective that many people grapple with in their grief, they get to a place of like, oh, it's just grief. It's not just grief, but it's grief. And it's going to take the time that it takes. And maybe it's okay that I'm really struggling. So that popped up for me. And then the other idea I was thinking about is, I don't know if this is true, 
But my sense is if you are going through the process of recovery, there's the hope and the promise of being able to live a life that maybe feels more embodied, more present, more fulfilling, more in the here and now. And you are in this process with grief of like, if I go through this process, what's the hope and the promise? The life I work so hard to have is not here. So what do I do? Right. Right. Well, and again, to, to kind of highlight the lucky set of circumstances that I've been blessed with a few times, you know, when I was in detox uh, the second time for heroin addiction in Portland, the people who I was in there with uh, would be more akin to that, like complete loss that, that grief is born from, you know, where there is nothing like, so many of the people who were in that detox had nothing to go to after this. Uh, they either had to go back to the house they were living in, which is where it's everywhere, or they had no job prospects or their family had abandoned them or whatever it was. There was absolutely no hope for them for a better life on the other side, which just broke my heart because much like this loss for me at that time, I had friends and family waiting for me on the other side. I had a clean house that I was going to move into. I had job prospects and all these things. So I knew that I was in for a long haul, but I, I had, I had a, a light at the end of that tunnel where so many kids who are going through recovery or trying, they're almost just like going through the paces and it, it, it's sad. And it, it does remind me of, in some ways of that sort of grief where it is just all encompassing and everything is ended. Like what is, when is the light at the end of this tunnel? I mean, I know I'm, I'll technically be alive, but, and that, yeah, that's hard. That's a hard mindset and it's hard to be dedicated to whether it's recovery or processing grief. It's so hard to be dedicated to that when the light isn't that bright at the other side. So yeah, that's a whole nother thing you got to learn and, and manifest and some, some, sometimes and know that, you know, enough time will show a couple of different light options regardless. So. What would you say was like your, your first or your second kind of glimmer of that light? Cause you talked about like, is it going to be worth it to go through all of this and then crawl to the top of this ice hole? And like, what's my life look like without Kara and without my house and without my cat? It, the first actual glimmer of light wasn't until about a year after the loss or maybe even close, closer to like a year and three months or four months. It wasn't until very recently actually. And what it was, was kind of a confluence of things. A bunch of things happened for me all at once while I was kind of in that weighed down weightlessness, that holding pattern of just trying to survive until some things developed. And I wound up fi finding an apartment in the perfect location for me that was still on, on the North coast of Oregon. Uh, it was kind of like the bachelorized version of the off the grid home that we had where I'm kind of tucked into like the Cape mirrors area. Uh, but I'm still like four miles away from the Safeway in Tillamook, but I'm up in the, I'm up in the woods and I'm around the corner from a beach. So I have kind of that peace and quiet and it's an affordable, wonderful home. So that happened. So I knew I had a place to live. Like I knew where I was going to live. Like that was settled. I had a year lease and I knew I was going to be here. And that was spectacular. And then the essays kind of grew into this Substack platform. And so I had kind of a, a clear purpose with, I was getting some wonderful feedback 
And I was being inspired by people who were reaching out to me who had discovered the essays because of the way Substack, uh, the platform is, there was a way that I could get these out to people for free, but if they wanted to support me or be a paid subscriber, they could, but people had access to this if, if they wanted it and they didn't, wouldn't have to pay for it. And that, you know, that settled in my heart. Right. And so this felt like a path forward that I could somehow either have a positive impact or help people in some way, shape or form while I'm processing myself. That felt like a, a great way forward. Uh, so now I had kind of a, a purpose again and a destination. I had a place to live. The outgoing side of my personality kind of came back almost all at once overnight, uh, which I was lamenting for quite some time because I call it the tour guide persona of me, which is in some ways the money-making aspect of my personality, the being funny and outgoing and, and, and being able to communicate with people. Uh, and tell stories was was a huge part of what I did and my livelihood. And that was and it, the happy part of me. And it was gone, just gone for over a year. And that came back, like I said, almost all at once overnight. And so I was like, okay, I can go get like a part-time job at the Tillamook Creamery as a tour guide, like just to get out of the house so I don't go feral and to kind of maybe meet some people in my local community. And so all those things kind of happened all at once. And lo and behold, I, um, after a year and a half spent thinking there was probably, I was probably never going to love again or date again, or really be interested in anyone ever again, necessarily. After, and after truly believing that and being fine with it, because I'd had, you know, my, my great love of my life and was, was resigned to that. And that was fine. Lo and behold, you know, I meet a woman who, gives me butterflies, uh, you know, when we hang out and talk. And so I, and so that aspect of me kind of was starting to be reborn. And so all of that happened at once. And it's, yeah, that's just, it went from almost no light at the end of the tunnel to like full radiating sunbeam, yeah. <laughs> almost, almost in, in a 24 hour period. And so, yeah, I didn't get to see any light until it was just on me. In a more ideal situation, perhaps you get to see the light getting brighter and gives you more hope as you walk to it. But sometimes it just finds you. Yeah, you went from total darkness to complete spotlight. Yeah, yeah. That's literally what happened. And it's been, I've been kind of looking around uh, ever since, like, when are they going to take it away? <laughs> When's the other shoe going to drop? Because this is just too good. Like, life is like life again. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm settling into it and accepting it for what it is. <laughs> Well, and, and we don't want to leave listeners with this idea that grief is dark and hard, and then suddenly the sun comes out and it's all gone again. And I know we're kind of heading into the fall, early winter, like the swirl of the holidays, and the two-year anniversary is coming up in February. So I'm wondering, what, how does grief continue to be a part of your world? That's a really good question. You know, it I'll tell you what, sometimes I invite it in uh, if it's been too long. <laughs> or one of the things I do now, I'm giving library presentations or presentations around the state kind of based on these essays about healing and grieving uh, in the outdoors. And they're very heavy and intense. And I relive a lot of, of rough stuff uh, in these essays or in these presentations. And so what I'll do 
the day of or before the presentation is I'll, I'll lean into it. Uh, I'll listen to the songs. I'll look at the photos. I'll have conversations with her. I'll just invite it in and have a giant cathartic cry session. Just kind of make sure I'm, make sure I'm still in there, you know, get it, get it out. Uh, even if it's been a while and I feel happy or, you know, um, yeah, I just kind of want to, I want to revisit it because sometimes I feel like I, I, that transition was so quick from no light to full light that I want to make sure I'm not, um, sweeping it under the rug if it's trying to wave at me, you know, or, or, or just ignoring it entirely. What's the response been so far to the presentations that you're doing? So the response has been life-changing for me. And to hear others tell it uh, for some folks is other than myself as well, which is when I first started doing these presentations, I, I, I set up three because I didn't know how it's going to go. I didn't know how I was going to handle it or if I was going to be capable of doing it. I didn't know if people were going to show up for a library presentation and just be offended or like, what is he making everyone cry for? What? This is a library. So I, I didn't know like if they were going to run me out of town on a rail after like assaulting their, their senses with something like this. And, but come to find the responses I've been getting in person and then later in email and the people I've met and the stories I've heard um, have been energizing tenfold from any sort of depletion that I was getting emotionally or physically from this uh, to know the, the impact and potential impact um, from people themselves. And then is just giving me like that, again, that purpose and that, that way forward and that path forward that, that means so much to me right now that, yeah, this is, this is great. I mean, I'm helping myself in, in processing this, but still there is the potentiality that this is actually uh, of benefit to, to other people and potential benefit. So that's just been incredible. And I have met so many amazing people doing either similar or parallel parallel things or that have invited me. Like, you know, we were introduced uh, via uh, another uh, volunteer at the Dougie Center. Uh, but I'm meeting these people that have tendrils into like the grief community or the outdoor community and are doing such amazing, fabulous work in helping people to process or recover or heal. And I'm being guided in those ways or meeting those people to, where we can all kind of network or web together. Uh, or I can be of assistance to someone or I can come talk to their people or vice versa. I can bring people into my world and they can help me. So it's been the, the most inspiring thing I've ever done. Hands down. Uh, it's been incredible. I worry this is going to sound too trite, but in <laughs> listening to you, I'm like, oh, you know, prior to Kara's death and the fire, you were like a full-time nature tour guide. And, and now, in a sense, you're becoming a bit of an emotional tour guide for people through the realm of grief. So it's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, and my writing changed, you know, I was just doing pure outdoor and travel writing. I'd never written about myself ever, ever. You can have it as your new tagline, emotional tour say, guide. I'm going to put that on the resume. 
it goes on. I credit you. <laughs> well, Adam, for listeners who do want to connect more with you, you've mentioned your Substack, your presentations. Like, where should people head? These are all things I'll put in the show notes, but sometimes it's nice to just hear it too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Substack page or newsletter is called Collecting Sunsets, and it's at adamsawyer.substack.com. And, you know, people can just go to the archive and look up stories if they want. They can, again, be a free subscriber and a new essay comes out once a week, every Tuesday. Or if they are, are getting any sort of benefit from it and have the ability to or want to support the cause in the writing, they are more than welcome to be a $5 a month subscriber. Uh, on Facebook, you can find me at Adam Sawyer, Professional Gentleman of Leisure. <laughs> Sorry, folks. It was a very different time when I came up with that handle. Um, and that's where I all post like where my presentations are going to be and some other things that are coming up, but those are probably two, the, the two best ways to, to get that information. Well, thank you so much, Adam. And I will put all those things in the show notes listeners so you can connect, uh, with Adam's work. Adam, thanks again for wanting to have this conversation with me, making time to have this conversation and just being part of this process. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Again, it was a pleasure and an honor. And listeners out there, I say this each and every single time, but thank you for tuning in, for making the show mean something. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot which is also the main website for Dougie Center, where you can find information about our local programming, our trainings, all of our free downloadable resources, and each and every episode of Grief Out Loud. I'm excited, as always, to share that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. 